0: I want to uh, sort of follow on, really, from what Greg was saying this morning. I'm a a church historian, not a New Testament person. But what I want to do is is point to the continuity between New Testament emphases and emphases that we see in the early church and even on into the medieval and Reformation church. I'm going to continue this this evening when I talk particularly about Martin Luther. But I want to focus uh, this morning on what do we call the, the Scripture principle, if you like. Uh, one of the, the things that's often said about uh, modern evangelicalism today is that its emphasis upon Scripture, particularly its emphasis upon the, the authority of Scripture, is something that's a relatively recent vintage. And I want to take you, first of all, to a passage in Scripture uh, to look at uh, in order to demonstrate that... The emphasis that we place upon Scripture and upon the authority, the absolute authority of Scripture, is not a new one, but is embedded in the very New Testament itself. So turn with me to Second uh, Peter, chapter, two, no, chapter 1. If you have your pew Bibles, it's on page 1018. Sorry, is that... Uh Oh, you don't use Pew Bible. Sorry. Well, uh, I hope I haven't stolen somebody's Bible then, because I just grabbed one off a, <laughs> off a chair. Uh, 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 whoever it is, I'll return it at the end. Um, uh, so, anyway, well, if you've just stolen somebody's Bible, you might find it on page 1018. Uh, it's 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want to read from verse 16. And this is. Uh, it 's a passage in peter that 's actually referring to the events that were just described to us in the Gospel of mark, the, the famous transfiguration. But the application that Peter makes of it here is somewhat interesting. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the the honor to to go and give a paper at a, a seminar at a German university at the end of my paper, one of the German academics turned to me and said uh, that was a very British paper, which in the context of Germany may not be uh, a compliment, of course. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, it's a very empirical paper. Of course, if you know the difference between, say, Anglo-American scholarship and German scholarship, German scholarship is often rooted in, is much more philosophically self-conscious in many ways, uh, and more abstract. And what interested me about my paper was that it was... Sort of empirical and inductive. I went to text, I saw what was there, I drew stuff from them, and I drew conclusions. Uh, As a British person, I'm trained uh, basically to be empirical. Things I see and sense are important in guiding me to what is and is not reality. And Peter here is talking about a kind of empiricism in the first chapter of his second letter. moment where Peter, James and John went up the mountain with the Lord Jesus and there was this strange mystical experience when he was transfigured before them and remember as we we heard Moses and Elijah appear alongside him and the voice comes from heaven again acknowledging Christ and his commission and Peter saying we were there and we saw it and that's what makes the next verses interesting or perhaps unexpected and we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You hear what Peter's saying there. He's describing this amazing event when he would have been uh, present on the mountain. You know, and It's got to have been, if, if I would say, say to you, you know, if you could zoom back into New Testament times, uh, which event would you most like to have witnessed? Probably a significant number would say it would have been great to be on the mountain. If I could have been on the mountain, if I could have seen what happened on the mountain, wow, my faith would be that much more certain. You can imagine, given the the rather sort of corrupt context, I suppose, of of much Christianity in the West these days, that if that happened to you, you could set up your own ministry. You would be the person, you know, if I was speaking here this morning on church history and there was some guy down the street who'd been there on the mountain and was going to give you his eyewitness account of what it was like to be there on the mountain, how many of you would have come to hear the Bible expounded? And how many of you would have gone to hear the man who was there and saw it describing what had happened before his very eyes? And yet Peter says this, we have something more sure. It's absolutely counterintuitive what Peter says at this point. You know, I think, Peter was there on the mountain, wow, that's great, it's a sh- I wish I could have been there. But as a kind of consolation prize, we got the eyewitness accounts and we've got the Bible. It's a kind of consolation prize. If you can't be there, it's the next best thing. If you can't be at the royal wedding, you can watch the videos on YouTube. <laughs> it's that sort of thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a consolation prize. But that's not what Peter says. Peter doesn't say, well, we got the, we were, you weren't there, but you got the Bible, and that's like a consolation prize. What Peter says is, we have something more sure. This is more certain than being on the mountain and seeing it. We have the sacred oracles. And then he goes on to say, none of these sacred oracles came about as the result of the will of man. It wasn't just that somebody thought, ah, it would be great to sit down and write some you know, sacred-looking books and pass them off to people as having some kind of insight into who God is. Peter goes on to say, you know, these oracles came by inspiration of God. They were written down because of the will of God. And because, if you like, we might say because of the divine author, they're therefore more certain even than being there in person on the mountain. So the first point I wanted to make today was to say that there is, even within the pages of the New Testament itself, remarkable statements about Scripture. And I don't think in the whole of the Bible there is a more remarkable statement about Scripture than 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says, I was there and I saw it, but my faith is based much more securely on the sacred oracles than on the amazing phenomena that I saw that day. So the first thing then, as I say, to establish is Scripture is even in the New Testament, being put forward as what we might call, in slightly pompous terminology, the cognitive basis of our faith. Why are we certain? Because Scripture says so. One of the things I do at my, my, my church with my wife, I assist her teaching the, the little kids uh, Sunday school on a Sunday. And every couple of weeks, we, you know, each week we sing a song with them. And every couple of weeks this song comes around, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a great, a great little song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Compare it to that dreadful Victorian nonsense. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. That's Oprah Winfrey theology. Seriously. (laughs) Seriously. But how often do you hear from Oprah Winfrey says, I know it's true because I just feel it in my heart. I know unicorns exist because I just feel it within my heart. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now if we move on from the New Testament, and so you know, you take yourselves back in time. Think of yourself, you're living around about you know, somewhere between the year 90 and the year 100. And you're in your church, and a messenger arrives, and the news is that John, the Apostle John, has passed away. The last of the apostles has died. What's going to happen in the next generation? We've already heard from Greg this morning that even during the time of uh, of Paul's apostolate, false teaching is already creeping into the church. It's not that false teaching is something that happens after the New Testament. False teaching is already there uh, during the New Testament times. But during New Testament times, there are some key guys that you can look to for authority. You can look to Paul. You can look to Peter. You can look to John. These are the men who either they, they knew Jesus personally or like Paul, Jesus met them personally in this mysterious way after his ascension into heaven. But they have authority because they are, if you like, the keepers of the torch, keepers of the flame. But you hear that the last of them has died. What are you going to do? Well, the church, the start of the second century, is faced with what we would call you know, the problem of authority. Okay, we know false teaching. It's either always in the church, as Greg said, or always threatening to come into the church. How are we going to find ways of making sure that we can keep that false teaching out? Or when it comes in, we can identify it and deal with it. Well, the church comes up with three answers at this particular point in time, all of which I think uh, connect to the New Testament. They all represent extensions of New Testament teaching, and they are all important for the preservation of the faith in the second century. One, church government. We have this collection of writings called the Apostolic Fathers, They're writings that were written either at the very end of the 1st century or on into the 2nd century. The term apostolic fathers is what we'd call a scholarly construct. Again, if you could beam yourself back in time to the beginning of the 2nd century and you were to go into a church and say, can you connect me to the apostolic fathers, you'd be met with blank expressions. There is no group, self-identifying group, called the apostolic fathers. It's just a term that scholars have coined... As, a, as an umbrella to put together this, this loose collection of writings that were written uh, just after, or maybe even overlapping with, the apostles. Late 1st century, 2nd century. This collection of writings, you get them online for free. If you type in Apostolic Fathers, it will take you to websites where they're republished. They give us fascinating insights into how the church was thinking in this period when you're going through this transition from the first generation of the apostles to what we might call normal Christian existence, when there aren't going to be apostles around and the church has got to find some way of transmitting the faith faithfully from generation to generation. And the Apostolic Fathers, this loose collection of writings, a number of themes emerge again and again as you read these. And one of them is the issue of church government. It's Very clear that in the Apostolic Fathers... The office of the eldership is very important. That right there in the, in the early church, there has been this identification or that this, this establishment of the need for particular men who really are well-grounded in the faith to have peculiar authority within the church. So we see an establishment of church government in these early writings. And I would say this is an extension of Paul's later letters. If you look at the later letters of Paul, 1, 2 Timothy, Titus, what is one of the preoccupations in those letters? It's church government. Those who say, you know, the New Testament has no, you know, no church government or anything, it's nonsense. One of the preoccupying thoughts of Paul, as he realizes he's coming towards the end of his own life, is he's got to clarify to Timothy and to Titus, what good church leaders look like. As Greg has said this morning, that doesn't mean that those letters just apply to church leaders, but their primary focus is describing uh, the kind of people who should be in charge of the church. It's always, uh, I just put this as an aside. It's very interesting, of course, that those doctrinal qualifications, these preachers, these men are to be doctrinally sound. They're to know the tradition as it's been handed on to them but also they're to be morally sound as well. And not only that, but Paul says, you know, they're to be of good reputation with outsiders. There's a reason why they're called elders. I think Paul naturally expected they'd be older guys, guys who are not only established in the church, but also established in their communities. They'd be good of good reputation with those outside the church. So Paul's concern for church government is not only a doctrinal one, but these men have to, they have to walk the talk, we'd say. They have to be those who reflect in their lives that which they believe in their hearts. And it's one of the reasons, I think, when you, when you reflect on the nature of the church, it's important always, I think, to make a distinction between members and office bearers. I'm a big believer in making the, the criteria for church membership as low as possible. Romans 10. If you, believe, if you believe in your heart, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Criteria for church membership should be low. Members should not be required to subscribe to great, massive, elaborate confessions. That's not what Romans 10 says. But then if you're going to be an office bearer, you've got to have a good grasp of the faith because you're going to carry huge responsibility for the training up of those people who come in on that low bar of membership. So Paul then is thinking about, you've got to get good men, thoughtful men, learned men, men deeply schooled in the faith into positions of leadership. Second thing that the early church starts to emphasize is something called the rule of faith. And the rule of faith is it's very interesting. It occurs in quite a number of texts in the, in the second century. And it's basically a summary of the Christian faith. If if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, the rule of faith sort of covers the heads of doctrine that the Apostles' Creed cover. You know, God is one, he's a creator. Um, Jesus really came and took flesh, died on the cross, rose again, ascended, will come again in judgment at the end of time to judge the living and the dead. It's a basic statement of what we might call the boundary markers of the Christian faith. What's interesting about the rule of faith is it pops up in these different texts and it's all over the Mediterranean. But it's in a different verbal form each time, which is interesting because that would lead you to believe as a historian that what you have here is a basic agreement on content, but not yet on words. The fact that they're using different words to express the same stuff should give us great confidence that actually there's quite a consensus at this point about what are the key things in uh, theology that are important for the church. And again, I would say that that connects with what we see in the New Testament. What does Paul say to Timothy? Hold fast to the form of sound words that you've received. It's very clear that for Paul there is this tradition of teaching, closely connected and normed by Scripture, but there is this tradition of what is and is not true and correct. So the early church then, it's emphasizing church leadership. It also has a good idea, what we say a good synthesis of what the Bible teaches, what the gospel message is. And the third thing, the third thing that we find in the early church, in the apostolic fathers, is an emphasis upon scripture. And that's very interesting. And I want to spend a little bit of time this morning now, particularly given the the brief of this conference, reflecting upon early church understanding of Scripture. One of the interesting things uh, about the the apostolic fathers is the confidence with which they quote Scripture uh, most of the time. Uh, Sorry, they, they, they quote Scripture always with confidence, and they're quoting it in most of their writings. uh, I'll give you some examples. Um, Here, for example, is a a letter written by a bishop called Polycarp. He was bishop of Smyrna. He dies uh, rather horribly during one of the persecutions. But here's a quotation from a letter he wrote to the church in Philippi, a letter of Polycarp to the Philippians. He says, I am convinced that you are well trained in the sacred scriptures. It's important for Polycarp, as he thinks about this church, that what is this church doing? They're training these people well in the sacred scriptures, and that nothing is hidden from you. Only as it is said in these scriptures, be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun set on your anger. It appears there that he's quoting Ephesians four twenty six and Psalm four verse five. A couple of things we can sort of infer from the way Polycarp just throws this scripture out there. He doesn't feel the need to justify it. He just says, uh, as it is said in the scriptures. Da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. First, it suggests that the early church is already operating with some kind of embryonic canon. Those of you who know anything about the history of the New Testament will know it takes some centuries for sort of full agreement to be reached on all of the letters that should be in and those that should be excluded. What is interesting about the Apostolic Fathers is, one I think could make a good case for saying that the core of the New Testament, what we might call the really, really central important documents, they're already being quoted with confidence by people like Polycarp. Second, there is a clear assumption by Polycarp that God has revealed himself in the words of these writings. For what they say, God says. What they say is binding. And that raises, I think, for us, questions about, well, okay, so we're, we're beginning to see the early church now developing uh, this, or, or using scripture in ways that seem to exude confidence in both the clarity of meaning of scripture and the authority of scripture. Did the early church reflect in any way on, on how scripture came to be? Those of who know anything about contemporary debates in evangelicalism will know that a lot of the debate circles around the nature of inspiration. What does it mean to say that Scripture is inspired? Does it mean that God in some way wrote Scripture, that he was the author behind it? Or does it mean at the other end of the spectrum that Scripture is, if you like, does it, Scripture being inspired really mean Scripture is inspiring? You read Scripture, and it's uplifting. And the inspiration of Scripture, if you like, is the inspiration of the reader of Scripture. How did the early church think about these things? Well, we have another uh, early Christian writing, the first letter of Clement. And Clement says this. Look carefully into the Scriptures, he says, for these are the true utterances of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on, just a a few uh, lines later, to say the words of Scripture are the prophetic utterances of God himself. Now, these statements in Clement don't offer opinion on exactly how this process of inspiration should be understood in terms of the mechanics. It just assumes that the words of Scripture are spirit-inspired and authored words of God. We do find, however, some of the other early church writers thinking in more detail about, well, how do these word writings come about? And there's a character called Athenagoras. He's not one of the apostolic fathers. He's a little bit later in the second century. He's what we call a Greek apologist. In the second century, when persecution hit the church at various points, a number of Greek writers, Greek Christian writers, wrote what we call Apologies. Essentially, arguments for the Christian faith aimed at the pagan authorities that were persecuting them. Athanagoras was one of these, and he says this, "'We have the prophets as witnesses of the things we understand and believe. Men like Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other prophets declared things about God and the things of God. It would be irrational of us to disbelieve God's Spirit and accept mere human opinions instead.' For God moved the mouths of the prophets as if they were musical instruments. That's an interesting, interesting analogy. And I would want to argue that's actually a wholly inadequate analogy. We've already had it pointed out to us this morning that um, uh, the styles of the authors are, what's the word? Different <laughs> in, uh, in Scripture. The styles of the authors are different. So I think when, it come, when you start talking about sort of, as if it's some sort of mechanical dictation, there are problems. But I'm not qu- quoting Athenagoras here to say, Athenagoras gives us a good biblical understanding of the mechanics of inspiration. But what I want to say is, Athenagoras here clearly has a very high view of the text of Scripture. And that those who you'll sometimes come across who say, well, notions of the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture, that's really a 19th century invention. Well, No. It's not a 19th century invention. It's back there in the early church with Athenagoras. That's not to say it's right or wrong. The debate about whether it's right or wrong is a different debate to when it was first formulated and argued for. But Athenagoras is prepared to say, these men were like puppets, like musical instruments, like a flute in the mouth of God. This disregard... Or lack of interest in the human authorship of scripture is evident elsewhere in the early church writers. Here are some quotations from a number of ancient sources. Gregory the Great, 6th century Pope. It is pointless, he says, to ask who wrote the book of Job, since the Holy Spirit is rightly believed to have been its author. In other words, the one who wrote it is the one who dictated what is to be written. Again, I'm not arguing for dictation. I think there are problems uh, with dictation theory, certainly as a general theory. Clearly, there are passages of Scripture where God says, here are some words, write them down. That's dictation. Whether the letter to Romans was written by dictation is a different question. Second, the Moratorian fragment, an interesting fragment of of early text which actually contains uh, an embryonic canon of the New Testament in a, in a list. The Muratorian fragment says this, although different things are taught in the different Gospels, there is no difference with respect to the faith of believers because all of them were inspired by the same controlling spirit. And then a man called Theodoret of Sire. Some have said that not all the Psalms come from David, but that some are the work of others. I have no opinion either way. What difference does it make to me whether they are all Davids Or whether some of the compositions of others, when it is clear that they are all the fruit of the Holy Spirit's inspiration. So I want to connect, go back to the passage I read from Peter. Remember when I said we were looking at Peter? The surprising thing is that Peter says that more certain than being there on the mountain are the scriptures. Why can Peter do that? Because he says they're the oracles of God. How is that being understood in the early church? Well, they're picking up on Peter saying no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. These early church writers, the men coming in the years, the decades, the centuries, immediately after Paul and Peter are saying these were written by the Holy Spirit. The whole idea of inspiration, of a high view of inspiration, I think it's there in the New Testament, and we can see it being extended on out into the early church. Of course, these writers are not necessarily saying that human authorship is of no significance. They are presumably aware that languages are human languages, the books of the Bible of diverse literary genres and evidence different literary styles of their authors. The point is not to deny the human, but to underscore that the really important fact is the divine authorship, that it is this which is decisive for the content and authority of what is written. Peter doesn't say... The sacred scriptures are authoritative because they were really good guys who wrote them. He says they're authoritative because no prophecy came by the will of man but when wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Of course, no treatment of any doctrinal issue, least of all scripture in the early church, is complete without some reference to Augustine. Augustine is the giant, in, certainly in Western theology, arguably in the history of theology, period, after Paul. Love him or hate him... Every theologian has to deal with him. He lays down foundational studies of God's grace, foundational studies of the church. His book, The Confessions, um, if you ask students at Westminster, they will say, Truman says in his class that you cannot make a credible public profession of faith if you have not read Augustine's Confessions. Uh, And I stand by that. Augustine's Confessions is the book of well it is the first great psychological autobiography period I'm not talking about just about christian books here we're talking about literature it's the first great psychological autobiography where the real action the external action of augustine's life is connected to the internal action of his mind and then in a, a brilliant ending to the book which often leaves people confused cuz suddenly he move from augustine's life to the cosmos What Augustine does is he says, he's basically saying, the story of my life is the story of everybody's life. It's a story of fall and redemption. And not only is it the story of everybody's life, it's the story of the universe that falls away from God and is brought back to him in Christ. So Augustine is a giant of a figure. And of course, he has something to say about the authority of Scripture. A couple of years ago, a friend of mine, uh, an Anglican uh, vicar in the inner city in London, who's doing a PhD on um, Augustine, sent me an email and said, I gather there's some sort of debates at Westminster. Um, What are they about? And I emailed him back and said, well, it's about the inerrancy of scripture. And he wrote back and said, well, what's inerrancy? It's not, a, it's not a word that, that's common. That's that common in, in the British church. So I emailed him back, and I described uh, basically what, what inerrancy was, uh, the, you know, the Bible being without error. And he said, oh, you mean what Augustine taught on Scripture? I thought, that's fascinating. Here's somebody from completely outside all of the, the politics and aggravation of, of, of American evangelicalism, uh, where it's so often said, you know, inerrancy is a 19th century invention. He described the concept to a guy who's never come across it before, and he says immediately, oh yeah, that's what Augustine thought about Scripture. And he sent me a couple of passages. I emailed him back and said, send me to the passages. And he sent me to these passages in Augustine. I think Greg has already alluded to them yesterday at lunchtime. Augustine is writing, exchanging letters with a man called Jerome. Jerome was the great Bible translator of the ancient church. He put the Bible into Latin what's called the Vulgate, and the Vulgate still has high authority in Roman Catholicism. often thought you know, that the Vulgate was a sort of almost divinely inspired Bible translation. So, uh, you know, Jerome is no fool when it comes to Scripture, and he and Augustine are exchanging letters on the nature of the Bible, how to interpret it, how to translate it. Uh, and in letter 28, Augustine addresses the idea that Scripture may contain certain incorrect statements in order to achieve a particular desired goal. And we're all familiar with this kind of literary device, if you like, in, in, in ordinary life. You know, if I want my children to, uh, you know, go to bed, be quiet and sleep, not now because they're sort of 17 and 15 and they'd laugh if I tried this. But when they were smaller, you could say, you know, if you don't go to bed, the bogeyman will get you. You know, the bogeyman comes out at 11 o'clock at night and he walks the corridors of our house and you don't want to be around when he passes. Um, well, I'm, I'm, telling the, I'm telling a kind of little fairy story to my children in order to achieve a good end. I need them to go and settle down. Uh, it's a bit like the, the, the night before Christmas. You'll say to your, your children, well, you need to go to bed because the sooner you go to bed and go to sleep, the sooner Christmas Day will come. Well, of course, Christmas you know, Christmas Day is still X number of hours away. It just appears to come a bit sooner. But it sort of works. And, and Augustine is, is facing a, 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 an argument that, that comes up quite frequently in church history in various forms. That Well, maybe the, the Bible says things in a way that's, that's not technically correct in order that the effect achieved might be a good and proper one. Augustine says this, once you admit that a false statement has been made out of a sense of duty, there will not be a single sentence in the entire Bible that will be free of such suspicion if it seems difficult in practice or hard to believe. In such circumstances, it would be all too easy to explain the passage away by saying that the writer deceived his readers out of a sense of duty. Augustine, if you ever read him on lying, Augustine actually has a, He's one of the strictest views of Christian views of the truth that you'll find in any Christian moral writer. And he applies the same to Scripture. No, he said, you can't use that ruse that maybe the writer has put some false information in there in order to achieve the desirable effect. Because if that was the case, then every time you come across something that you don't like or it's a bit awkward, you're going to play that card. Well, I actually have to believe it literally, or I don't have to believe what it seems to be saying, because really it's just aiming for some effect. So Augustine, if you like, has no patience with the notion of godly deception when applied to the Bible. We might also say that such a passage in Augustine seems to point away from what we would call a purely functional understanding of Scripture's authority, where it is considered authoritative because it achieves that which it is intended to achieve in terms of its impact upon the listener or the reader. Such a is always involve some separation or even opposition between what we might call the letter and the spirit, between what is actually said and what is really intended. Augustine's argument here is akin to the kind of slippery slope argument sometimes used to defend views of inerrancy, countenance and error in one place, and the whole edifice is eventually mired in uncertainty. Further, Augustine also understands the moral and ethical implications of such a position. And that not primarily in terms of the idea that God is engaged in deception, but that the human interpreter now has another reason for avoiding the challenge of the Bible's message. Any passage I don't like, I can simply dismiss it as a contextual deception. Second important passage from Augustine occurs in letter 82, again to Jerome. And here is what the bishop says. Of all the books of the world, I believe that only the authors of Holy Scripture were totally free from error. And if I am puzzled by anything in them that seems to go against the truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript is faulty, or the translator has not caught the sense of what was said, or I have failed to understand it for myself. It's a fascinating passage for a number of reasons. First, this was the the first passage my friend Pete sent to me. Uh, Augustine makes it very clear that he believes the authors of Scripture are free from error. Given his statement in his earlier letter, it seems reasonable to take this statement at face value and assume that he's using the notion of error to mean incorrect information or misleading statement rather than some more slippery or nebulous concept. Second, he gives three reasons for perceived errors in Scripture. Faulty manuscripts, poor translation, or a fault in his own understanding. Of particular interest, I think, to us today is the first, faulty manuscripts. While the comment is too brief to build any elaborate theory of textual transmission relative to inspiration, it nonetheless clearly roots error in the manuscript tradition. And the implication, therefore, would seem to be that the originals, as given by God, were not prone to error, but that these crept in by some other means, such as copyist mistakes. So, Augustine then crowns the, the early church, if you like, and seems to argue for a very high view of the text of Scripture. And again, I, see, I would say what we see here in the early church is an extension of what's going on from, say, 2 Peter chapter 1. The Bible is authoritative for Peter because it's inspired by God. The implications of that are then being hashed out in the church in the coming centuries. And this continues into the, the Middle Ages. You know, going to talk a little bit now about uh, Thomas Aquinas. If Augustine is one giant of theology, Thomas Aquinas is a close second or third. Aquinas is the great theologian of the uh, Middle Ages. It seems a, a bit of a sort of nerdy point to us now, but in the 13th century... Europe is in intellectual turmoil. The philosophical, the metaphysical works of a Greek philosopher called Aristotle been translated into Latin. Very few people have been able to read Greek in the Middle Ages. Aristotle's logic has been authoritative for men in the church. Suddenly you have all these metaphysical works being translated that don't seem quite so conducive to Christianity. And the church is faced with a great dilemma. How does it address the writings of this man, this pagan philosopher, that were considered authoritative in areas like logic and language. How do you deal with his philosophy? Well, Thomas Aquinas is the man who comes up with the answer, or the answer that is ultimately accepted. He is the sort of the right man at the right time. An extraordinarily uh, clever individual. Uh, the legend is that he would uh, sit in a room and he would have five or six secretaries around him taking dictation. And you've seen those scenes where you have a a grand chess master uh, and he'll be in a room of sort of 10, 15, 20 other chess players and he moves from one table to the other and he's just making one move after the other and he's got all these different games in his head and he beats everybody. Thomas Aquinas was the theological equivalent of a chess grandmaster. He would sit in his room with all of these secretaries around him and he would dictate sentences. One to this secretary, then one to that one. And he would be writing six or seven different treatises at the same time, and holding it all together in his mind. Um, so Aquinas was a brilliant individual, and he wrote several uh, vast, uh, what we would call now systematic theologies. But like all medieval theologians, he was required to preach through great chunks of the Bible before they'd ever let him close to systematic theology. One of the common criticisms of, of men like Aquinas in Protestant circles uh, is that, you know, They just do theology, they never engage in exegesis. In actual fact, a man like Aquinas would have had to have done more exegesis before he was considered remotely qualified to teach in a classroom than any seminary professor in North America, Protestant circles would have been today. So Aquinas comes to his theology after years of studying Scripture. So inevitably, he has things to say about Scripture and central to Aquinas' notions of Scripture is his understanding of prophecy. And he, makes an important, he has an important insight, I think, that helps us understand something of why different Bible writers write in different ways. In his massive Summa Theologiae, he says this, "...it is requisite to prophecy that the intention of the mind be raised to the perception of divine things." Wherefore it is written, Ezekiel 2.1, Son of man, stand upon my feet, and I will speak to thee. This raising of the intention is brought about by the motion of the Holy Ghost. Wherefore the text goes on to say, And the Spirit entered into me, and he set me upon my feet. After the mind's intention has been raised to heavenly things, it perceives the things of God. Hence the text continues, And I heard him speaking to me. Accordingly, inspiration is requisite for prophecy, As regards the raising of the mind, according to Job 32.8, the inspiration of the Almighty giveth understanding, while revelation is necessary as regards the very perception of divine things, whereby prophecy is completed. By its means, the veil of darkness and ignorance is removed, according to Job 12.22. He discovereth great things out of darkness." It's worth noting a couple of things. First, Aquinas builds his understanding of prophecy on the text of Scripture itself, not on some prior dogmatic position. And he identifies the giving of prophecy with the exaltation of the human intellect in some way. And this allows him to make a key distinction between inspiration and revelation. Revelation involves the direct transmission of some item of information to the prophet via a vision or dictation, or some such. But inspiration involves the exaltation of the human mind by the Spirit of God, such that the, the prophet is enabled to say or write supernatural truths to which he would not naturally have access, while yet remaining the individual that he or she is. You see what Aquinas is doing here. To us, it might seem obvious now, but Aquinas is the first man who does this, And he says we need to understand what's going on with the writing of Scripture. There are two things that take place, he says. There's the revelation that comes from God. God has got to reveal something about himself, which is not naturally available to human beings. But in order to make humans, the authors, if you like, capable of receiving that, he raises their minds up while they yet retain their individual integrity. I want to say as a sort of historian of theology, this is a great improvement upon what we saw in some of those apostolic fathers where they were on the right track. They really wanted to defend the authority of Scripture and so they talked about Scripture being, the inspiration being like the playing of a flute or, or dictation. What Aquinas is saying here is no. The dynamic of inspiration, we have to take account of the fact that different writers write in different styles. It's very clear that Paul remains Paul when he writes his letters. In the same way that Peter remains Peter. Luke remains Luke. John remains John. David remains David. We've got all these different styles. So how do we connect that with the action of God? Well, Aquinas is saying it's because those minds, shaped and formed as they were to those individuals, were exalted by God and yet retained their individuality and their personality. So it's important, I think, Aquinas, uh, you know, often as Protestants, we tend to think of Aquinas as a bad guy, believes in transubstantiation, uh, defended the Catholic Church, etc. But Aquinas does us a great favor, I think, here in putting into place distinctions that help us to understand why different parts of Scripture look different, and yet while Peter can still say they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we move on into the Reformation. I'll talk more about uh, Martin Luther uh, tonight, uh, so I, will, I won't address Luther so much, except that uh, you will sometimes find, as you read on Martin Luther, Martin is one of those characters, because he's such a, a fun guy and he says things in such an extreme way, you know, any old loony can grab hold of Luther and pretend he said something he didn't say. Uh, if you look at, um, I'm not saying... Uh, Somebody's recently uh, made the case that Martin Luther believed in post-mortem evangelism, that it didn't matter if you died outside of the faith, you got a second chance. Luther never said that. he never believed that. Um, somebody else, uh, Frank Schaefer, son of Francis Schaefer, has written this uh, book it's coming out on his parents. I, I saw an advanced sort of excerpt from it last week, claiming that Luther slept with his girlfriend openly before he got married. Absolute nonsense. The problem is Luther wrote a lot of stuff, he was a controversial figure, he's open game, he's open target for anyone to take a shot at. And if you read about Luther, sometimes you'll say, well, Luther didn't really believe in the authority of scripture. Luther was quite comfortable with the fact that scripture was wrong on numerous things. Most, uh, obviously, of uh, uh, of all, uh, Luther rejects uh, the book of James, the book of James, as far as Luther's concerned, uh, teaches justification by works. Um, and he's actually quite extreme about James at various points. In one of his offhand comments, uh, he, may, he says to a friend, you know, if I had my way, I would rip little Jimmy from the Bible, he says, <laughs> and throw him on the fire. And then in the Luther Bible, in the marginal comment where James, I think it's three one? James says, you know, not many of you should aspire to be teachers. Luther puts a marginal comment in saying, oh, James, If only you had taken your own advice. (laughs) Important thing to realize about about Luther and James is Luther's objection to James is not an objection to the notion of inspiration. It's an issue of canon. Luther's not saying inspiration doesn't happen. Luther's not saying, when inspiration happens, the text isn't authoritative. What he's actually saying is, James is not inspired and therefore shouldn't be in the canon. I disagree with him on that. Most Lutherans disagree with him on that. But you can't use his objection to James to say he doesn't believe in the verbal authority of Scripture. And indeed, he has various comments in his writings elsewhere that show he has a high view of Scripture. Here, in his second great commentary on Galatians, he wrote two commentaries. Uh, His commentary on Galatians, chapter 3, verse 14, he says this, Therefore, if Christ himself is the price of my redemption, if he himself became sin and a curse in order to justify and bless me, I am not put off at all by passages, even if he were to produce 600 in support of the righteousness of works and against the righteousness of faith, and if you were to scream that Scripture contradicts itself. I have the author and the Lord of Scripture, and I want to stand on his side rather than believe you. Nevertheless, he says, it is impossible for Scripture to contradict itself except at the hands of senseless and stubborn hypocrites. At the hands of those who are godly in understanding, it gives testimony to its Lord. Therefore, see to it how you can reconcile Scripture, which, as you say, contradicts itself. I, for my part, shall stay with the author of Scripture. Earlier in his career, responding to a a critique of his views by a Catholic uh, cardinal, Sylvester Prierias, in uh, has such an ugly name, his name in Italian was Mazzolini, which sounds much more uh, attractive. He cites Augustine and says, I've learned to give this honor only to those books which are called canonical, to believe most assuredly that none of their writers erred. Of course, such brief comments are insufficient to allow us to reconstruct Luther's doctrine of inspiration and authority in any elaborate way but they are nonetheless suggestive of and consistent with the kind of statements about verbal inerrancy that we find in the early church fathers and we find in certain strands of modern reformed and evangelical theology today. And indeed, like the early church fathers, Luther is so confident in the uniform authority of scripture that he's quite happy to hang an argument on a single verse Referring to 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 3, he declares, this is in the context of dealing with monastic vows, he says, On the authority of this text alone, since it is a word of the Holy Spirit, who is our God blessed forever, amen, I am bold enough to declare that all monks be absolved from their vows, and I pronounce with confidence that their vows are unacceptable and worthless in the sight of God. 500 years on, nearly 500 years on, it's easy for us to miss the full power of what Luther's saying there, but this is just one of many things that he said that would have got him a long prison sentence, if not a death sentence, by declaring that all monastic vows have no authority whatsoever. That's a very radical statement, and yet he does it on the basis of what? This single verse he says. So we find no elaborate theory of inspiration in Luther, We don't find him wrestling significantly with the textual problems there are, but we find a robust assertion of the full truthfulness of Scripture, its identity as the speech of God, and the importance of its verbal form and content, and its inspiration by the Holy Spirit. More briefly, just talk about uh, John Calvin. Again, Calvin's writings are vast. It's very difficult to do. It's impossible to do justice to his thoughts on Scripture in just the remaining two or three minutes. But a few basic points can be made. Calvin stands with Luther as seeing the text of Scripture as providing the basic objective foundation for the construction of theology. This should not be understood as pointing towards a kind of no-creed-but-the-Bible theology... In the sense that Calvin just read his Bible and thought of his theology from scratch. Far from it, Calvin's theological and exegetical works clearly demonstrate that he read widely in the history of theology and exegesis and developed his theology in conscious dialogue with writers from the past in his own generation. But all of those writers were normed in his eyes by the text of Scripture. Second, Calvin placed great emphasis on the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit in applying the word to its readers and even more its hearers. But he didn't see that this should be set in opposition to the objectivity of the text as truth. It's a modern, I think, of specious distinction that some make to say, well, Scripture's true because it achieves a true effect. For Calvin, Scripture is true because it achieves a effect, true effect, but it's also true because it's true. And it achieves its true effect because it is true. So when we bear that in mind, it's evident that in Calvin's writings, he did not simply regard the content, but also the form, the words of scriptures of divine origin. See his comment on 2 Timothy 3.16, when he refers to the prophets as not speaking by themselves, but as being organs of the Holy Spirit. A comment whose most natural meaning would seem to indicate some form of dictation. Further, in the Institutes, he declares that, and I quote, "...no other word is to be held as the word of God and given place as such in the church than what is contained first in the law and the prophets, then in the writing of the apostles. And the only authorised way of teaching in the church is by prescription and standard of his word. From this also we infer that the only thing granted to the apostles was that which the prophets had of old. They were to expound the ancient scripture." And to show what is taught there has been fulfilled in Christ. Yet they were not to do this except from the Lord, that is, with Christ's Spirit as precursor, in a certain measure dictating the words. And that has implications, of course, for, for Greg's area of New Testament use of the Old. What Calvin is saying there is well, what the prophets of the Old Testament did was expanded the word of God to people. What do the apostles do? The apostles expounded the word of the Old Testament and applied it in their day and generation. They did it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What do preachers do today? Well, they look back to the New Testament guys and saw what they did with the Old Testament, and they're to do the same. The form, the very form and structure of Scripture is authoritative. So in conclusion then, we look at the doctrine of Scripture from the Bible itself to the Reformation. A number of points emerge. First, the notion that the very words of Scripture are inspired, truthful, and exactly what God wants them to be is present from the apostolic fathers onwards. And I've said it's already present in the New Testament. Second, that Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And exactly how this inspiration takes place are two separate points. And theologians exhibit a variety of opinions on the latter, ranging from theories of dictation through the crucial distinction between revelation and inspiration made by Thomas Aquinas, to later, we didn't have time to look at this, to broad consensus statements of post-Reformation Protestant confessions. I would argue that that broad and somewhat eclectic understanding of uh, inspiration reflects the Bible's own account of it. Times in the Bible seems to offer a dictation model. The Lord says, write this down. Here's a scroll, here's a pen, write it down, that's dictation. No evidence that that's what happened when Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. What does Luke tell us? Luke tells us, I went out and I interviewed people, and I got all the documents, and I built my history in a way that a modern historian would go out and build his history. So I think the broad nature, the eclectic understanding of the dynamics, the mechanics of inspiration, Exhibited in the church, in church history reflect the Bible's own view on this. And third, the kind of typical critical questions which we now face uh, are you know a relatively recent vintage, and I'll talk a little bit. We'll probably talk about this a little bit in the in the Q and A, I guess. One thing I have to say is I've dealt really with pre-modern people here and the kind of questions that press in on us are not dealt with directly uh, by these earlier writers. But I would say this. Those kind of questions only arise in a context where you have a high view of Scripture. Why is it that people at seminaries these days should study Greek and Hebrew? Because somebody at some point decided, yes, they need to study Greek and Hebrew because that was how... The Bible was originally delivered. The Bible is the word of God in its original languages. And the kind of problems that get thrown up in the modern world about the authority of Scripture relative to its text can only occur in a context where people have actually had a high view of the text of Scripture. I'll conclude there. As I say, I'll deal with Luther in more detail tonight, but I hope that what I've given you is, is at least a reasonable account of Understanding of the authority of Scripture from the Apostolic Fathers up to the end of the 16th century. And if I stole your Bible, please come and recover it from the. uh